I want to thank you guys all for letting me come here and speak to you and to get to know you. You guys have all been terrific so far, and I'm really enjoying getting to meet you all. So, life is difficult and, and discouraging sometimes, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. You get on the news or you get on Facebook, and within like two minutes, you're frustrated because like everything seems to be going wrong, and sometimes it feels like you know, fab the very fabric of society like be falling apart, that you know, we're killing babies, we're being mean to poor people, and it's like, what, what's going on? And like, I thought God was supposed to be in control. Like, where is he in this story? And if you've asked yourself that question, and if you've ever been discouraged by a, a seeming absence of right in the world, you're not alone. Uh, many people, not just, you know, among people that we know, but people in the Bible ask that same question. Habakkuk, for example, asks in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Or how about in Revelation chapter 6, where the souls under the altar say in verse 9 and 10, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, if you've ever asked yourself these questions, if you've ever felt concern about that, there's good news because... There is an entire genre of things in the Bible that deal with this very question, this very feeling of uh, tension, where we know that God is supposed to be in control, but we look at the world, it doesn't seem that way. And that genre is called apocalypse. Now, apocalypse is a scary word, and we often, you know, I, I told them last night, I'm going to talk about apocalypse today, and they're like, will there be zombies? I was like, there will be no zombies. So, if you're thinking there will be zombies, I will uh, just cut off that, that hope right now. So, apocalypse is a genre of literature in a story form with, that takes the narrator out of this present plane of reality and brings them to a spiritual plane to understand truths. And the purpose of it is revelation so that they can understand what's going on. And so it's very appropriate that we sang Higher Ground, a song about, hey, we're here, but take us somewhere higher so that we can see the spiritual world that you have in control, so that we can see, as we sing in the second song, that there is a rainbow in the cloud after all of this frustration here. So I'll repeat my definition of apocalypse. It's a genre of revelatory literature in story form that takes the narrator out of the present plane of reality to reveal spiritual truths. And a great example of this is the book of Revelation, or in Greek, apocalypsis, which just means revelation. And, I mean, the point of that book is that there's persecution going on. And the people are frustrated, they're scared, they're confused, 
And so God takes John and he shows him these visions so that John is able to understand and to relate to the people that this is not all there is, that there's more, and that God wins. And so by the time that I'm done with this lesson, I hope that you guys can have a better understanding of what apocalypse is and why it's really relevant and really encouraging in our lives today, and also perhaps that it can help us to reframe a little bit of our uh, celebration each week of the Lord's death until he comes. So we'll, that's, uh, that's what you have to look forward to. So in the book of Zechariah, which is a, uh, an example of apocalypse, uh, it's one of a few that have large sections of, of apocalypse in there, uh, we'll get a story uh, starting in verse 7 of chapter 1. But as I said, you know, apocalypse isn't about the end of the world or explosions and fire and sulfur from heaven. It's about revealing truths. And the reason that apocalypse is often in the English vernacular associated with these sort of crazy end of the world things is because one of the most common uh, motifs in apocalypse is this concept called the day of the Lord. And so we'll sort of integrate that in there. But the day of the Lord is when God comes in and sets the world right again, when he intercedes into history to make sure that the, those powers that be who are opposed to him are put down and that his people uh, can be in a place where you know, they're able to do the things that are necessary for them as, as good people. So right wins and evil is, is punished, and that's what happens in the day of the Lord. And when you have that, you have a lot of these crazy images of fire and sulfur and earthquakes, and we'll see some of that. But Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 7, is just a standard example of the revelatory kind of apocalypse. Uh, it starts in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So stop here. Image so far. It's dark, it's hazy, there's a forest. And out of the forest, we get three guys riding on horses. So in verse 9, Zechariah asks, So then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all of the earth remains at rest. So he asked, you know, who are these guys? What do they do? Why are they riding on horses? And they, the, the uh, angel guide, who is a sort of a common 
part of, of Apocalypse, says, look, these guys represent effectively the fact that God has eyes over the whole earth and he knows what's going on. So these are watchmen for God, whether God really has watchmen or not, or whether these are just sort of indicative of a greater spiritual reality that God knows what's going on, debatable and honestly unimportant. Uh, but what we know is that they have patrolled the earth and they say the earth is at rest. So you would think, okay, you know, this, this, is, this is good. You know, we want peace. We like peace. This is good. But uh, by the reaction in verse 12, we quickly come to understand that it's not so good. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the city of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And you're like, well, why wouldn't you want there to be a peace? Why does he react so violently to this peace? And the answer is that Jeremiah had promised them that after 70 years of being in captivity, they would come back and combined with some other prophecies, that those people who had opposed them, who had oppressed them, who had enslaved them, were going to get what was coming to them. But that hasn't happened yet. Of course, Persia has taken over Babylon, but Babylon is still sort of powerful. Persia is still sort of powerful. Oppression, although taken care of in an immediate sense, is still present. And the fact that the world is at peace means that God has not yet interceded to do what he said he was going to do, and that is punish the wrongdoing. So they're asking, why is this the way that it is? Why have you not come and, you know, oppressed the wicked because of all the oppression that they've given us? Sort of a similar question to what those souls were asking in, in Revelation 6. And so in verse 13 through 17, we get an answer. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So in their concern, they wanted to know why their enemies hadn't been taken care of. And he says, it's coming. Just wait. My zeal for you, my love for you as my people will not allow those who oppose you to go unpunished. I will strike them. But I will, also, I will not just do that. I will help you to rebuild. Because that's a major problem here is that Zechariah is trying to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And some of the priests and some of the people are really being discouraging about that. But he's saying, no, this is God's plan. It's going to work out. We've got to rebuild the temple. And so when, he's, when, he, they tell, when he tells them, look, you're going to have prosperity again, that gives them hope. And so this is 
as I said, you know, a, a basic example of the sort of revelatory kind of apocalypse where God takes people out of the normal plane of life. He says, look, I know it's bad, but I've got a plan. And those people who oppress you will not oppress you forever. While we're in Zechariah, we'll skip on over to some later chapters and take a look at the sort of uh, quintessential apocalypse. Uh, we'll skip through. In chapter 9, God says basically he's going to cut off all the weapons from the people of Israel and that he is going to pick them up and wield them as a weapon, which is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then we get to verse 12. He's basically saying the same thing. I'm going to turn you as a nation into a weapon against those who oppressed you. And so he'll say, uh, well, I'll summarize and then we'll read through the first six verses of Zechariah 12 that he's going to turn them into, first, a cup of reeling. So basically, Jerusalem and Israel will be God's cup of wrath against the nations. Then he says he's going to turn them into a stone that if they try and lift it, it will hurt them, which I'm sure is an image that some of us are more familiar with than they care to admit. Um, but... It's actually, it's a really sharp stone uh, instead of a heavy stone, which is a little bit less funny, but it is what it is. And then finally, into fire. And so God is saying, look, I'm going to take you, my people, and use you against the enemies. I'm going to entice them to come up against you, but when they come up against you, they're going to be so utterly defeated and embarrassed that I'm going to be glorified. So Zechariah 12, uh, starting in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will severely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather around it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness for the sake of the house of Judah. I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the people with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And on that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they will devour to the right and to the left and all the surrounding people, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So again, we see God is going to take his people and use them to his glory against those who represent the powers of evil in this world. And this is a common motif, especially the idea that God is going to sort of, you know, entice and uh, sort of push his enemies to come and attack this nation, which God is protecting with way more force than they realize. Uh, it happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39 with uh, Gog and uh, Meshach and Tubal and all those sort of apocalyptic images. Basically, you know, they look and they're like, ah, look at this beauty little town. Let's go up and fight it. It doesn't have any walls. And then they get there and then God just like rains down fire and rocks and weapons and it's like pfft, death. 
Uh, and, you know, they were so confident. They thought, they're like, ah, this is going to be easy. We can do it. And then God just destroys them. And that's the same sort of thing we saw there in, in chapter 12, where they're like, ah, it's just a little rock. And they try and pick it up, and they cut their hands to bits. And it's like, ah, what happened? It's like God was protecting them. You didn't know. Um, and chapter 14 of Zechariah is a similar sort of picture. Uh, that's, let's see, that's what's happening there. Um, we'll start in verse one, it says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And you're like, what, Brent? I thought you just told me that they were going to come up, and then they were going to like hurt themselves, and it wasn't going to work. Yeah, that is what's about to happen, but that doesn't mean that the people get out unscathed. And we'll see, you know, again, a lot of times in the Bible, the powers of evil have a temporary victory before they are utterly wiped out and destroyed, and that seems to be what's happening in the first two verses. But then, starting in verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that on one half of the mount shall move forward and the other southward and you shall flee to the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So we see, there's going to be temporary victory for those who oppose God, but then the Lord will come down like some sort of colossus and split the mountain open and create this way of escape for his people to run through this tunnel. And then, on that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. It will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. This idea that, like, the sky is going to freeze up, and it's going to be like nothing you've ever seen, and time is going to stop. And on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. And then in the next two verses, there's a lot of weird stuff. Basically, everything becomes flat, and there's only one mountain, and it's Zion. So, this... This story is wild, and it's one of my favorite examples of good old apocalypse because it, it, it shows a story of the people having this, this short-term victory. They thought they had it, and then all of a sudden God comes in, and it's, you know, it's no contest. We'll see in the next little bit. God will strike the enemies with this sort of wasting disease. And so all of the horses and the people that fight against them just sort of like rot in place. And then... Uh, Judah takes and they gather up all the gold and uh, they plunder those who plundered them. And then those who survive, having seen the glory of the Lord and his power, 
all come up together to follow after God. This is an incredible picture. And they all celebrate the Feast of Booths year by year. And all of the horses and all of the plain things become holy to the Lord. It's an incredible story of God's power to break into history. And so, like most Western readers, you might be asking, okay, when does this happen? Like, what is this story about? Has it already happened? Is this the end of time? What's, what's going on here? So, it has happened and it hasn't happened and it's going on now and it will be happening. There's this weird thing about prophecy that's just different from the way we think about prophecy where, like, we imagine God being like, okay, in 50 years, here's what's going to happen. And, yeah, some of the prophecy works like that. But a lot of times what happens is that God works in predictable patterns. Uh, and, I mean, predictable in air quotes, because he's God and he is very unpredictable at times. But he breaks into history in similar ways. And so at the end of time, when all evil is destroyed, he will come down and the world will be a new day like it's never been before. But in the same way, when Babylon was destroyed and when Assyria was destroyed, it was a new day like it had never been before. And the powers that be were toppled and the underdog wins. And so all throughout history, this same story has been taking place. That evil has these temporary victories, but then God comes and rescues his people and rescues righteousness and destroys wickedness but in the end of time it will be like that but on steroids times a million because it slowly reaches up to become one massive day of the Lord and so we have this this pattern where the day of the Lord is happening frequently where he's you know breaking into history and saving his people, and we can see that in several different places. Like I said, Assyria, Babylon, uh, is the day of the Lord in uh, AD 70 when the Romans take over uh, the Jews, which is a, a weird one worth talking way longer than I have time to, to think about there. Uh, but you can ask, okay, so when's the first day of the Lord? When does this motif begin? And technically, it's probably in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, or Genesis 10. But the first major one is in Egypt. And that's what I want to spend most of the rest of my time sort of thinking about. And uh, in Exodus chapter 2, we see a very similar thing to that cry at the beginning of Zechariah when they said, you know, why, you know, why is the world at peace? Because... In Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 32, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. 
that here, just as in the story that we read earlier, God had made a promise to his people that he was going to bring them out of captivity. And he'd given them a time span to uh, Abraham, he said 400 years or maybe 400 or four generations. To uh, Jeremiah, he'd said 70 years. But at the same sense, like God knows, he remembers, and he sees the oppression of his people, and he says, I'm going to come in and rescue you. And so we know that's what he does. He sends the plagues. He kills the firstborn son. And then he brings the people out, and they cross the Red Sea in this magnificent, probably one of, if not the greatest events in the Old Testament. When God brings his people across the Red Sea, and on one side they were enslaved, and on the other side they are free. And on one side they were this group of people in a foreign land, enslaved, and on this side, they are God's people. They are a nation, and he gives them a covenant in chapter 20, and they become something new, something they had never been before, because God acted in history to overthrow the powers that were oppressing his people, and he brought them out into freedom to make them his people, and they celebrated this every year with the Passover. In uh, Deuteronomy 16, it talks about this. In uh, verse 1, it says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And in verse 6, But at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. That every year they celebrate this Passover. They celebrate the way that the Lord broke into history to rescue his people and to create a nation for himself, to overthrow the powers of evil and to let good win. And so as we think about Passover, and it's no surprise that in Luke chapter 22, God uses this idea that they already had of the Passover in a very special way. In Luke 22, verses uh, 7 and 8, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And then we know the story. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. But he institutes the Lord's Supper on the night of Passover. Why? It's not some random night that he picked. He picked it because this is the time when they celebrate God overcoming evil and creating a nation for himself. And so when Jesus says, this is about me, I am now your new Passover. I am the one who will bring you out of oppression. I am the one who will rescue you. I am the one who will break into space and time, and set the world right. And how does he do that? But in his death, when Jesus died to save us from our greatest enemy, not Egypt, not Assyria, not the Maccabees, uh, or the Seleucids, but sin. And as we celebrate every week God's Resurrection from the grave. 
we're not just celebrating the fact that he died and was raised, but we're celebrating the fact that he had victory over death, that he had victory over sin, that these powers of darkness were defeated in an unprecedented way. And in the same way, he was in the grave for three days. And during those three days, I mean, Satan and all of his angels were probably up there. They were like, we got him. You know, like they, they were confident they had succeeded or so they thought. And then on the third day, he was raised, defeating evil, defeating Satan. And he won right there. The greatest day of the Lord of history up until this point. And until the end of time, the greatest that there will ever be. And so as we think about this God that rescues from history, from evil, from all of time, we start to think about our lives. And so as you know, we've been on this story uh, through the Bible. You know, we come back to where we are back in our pews in this life in 2020. And those powers of evil look a little bit less scary. Because you can look at all the troubles that are going on, all of the powers that be that are facing off against God, how evil seems to be winning, and you're like, yeah, but I already know how the story ends. Look, I'm, I'm in chapter 13 of a 20-story story, story and I know that God wins in the end. So yeah, come at me, Satan. What you got? You're gonna kill me? You're gonna you know, destroy the fabric of reality? Pfft. Who cares? Because God wins in the end. And he won in the past. And so we're fighting a battle that's already been won because we're, we see God winning throughout history. And it's not even a battle. He just comes in and they give up because God is so powerful. So as we think about where we are, when we're discouraged in the present time, you pick up some apocalypse. You look in there and you say, yeah, yeah, God wins. And as we're reflecting on the Lord's Supper, you can think about that too. Look, God wins. He defeated his enemies. He delivered us from the powers of evil. And when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in the last day, nothing can touch us.